Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'm Aaron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. Our guest today is a gentleman named Brandon Donnelly, who is the Managing Director of Slate Asset Management. Sorry, Managing Director of Development at Slate Asset Management. Sorry. We're recording it late. Today is sometime in July, but we got introduced to Brandon as part of the Land Development Conference uh, as part of the Real Estate Forum. So we're going to thank Informa for connecting us to Brandon, but now we're doing this in July, which is probably good because now we're a little bit further along in the... I don't know, has the cycle ended and the new cycle started? Or are we still kind of in purgatory between cycles? Whatever it is, you know, we're now in July. The reality of inflation, the reality of a pending recession is here. And we're here to talk today to Brandon about in this current environment, however you define it, what is it like development? How do you make development work? How do you manage the risk in today's sort of, again, sort of middle cycle, mid-cycle environment? So Brandon, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Before we jump into Brandon's background, because let Aaron and I are lenders and we have this you know, side gig as, uh, as podcasters. And Brandon's got a very similar structure to his life in that he's known of course, for his slate asset management efforts, but also has a, a truly legendary blog. Uh, daily for, I mean, he'll tell you how long. I mean, uh, every morning I wake up and it's in my inbox and I know it's unbroken for years now. It's a very impressive feat. So he also has a very uh, side, a very viable side career as, a, as an epic blogger. Which, which probably like the podcast makes you zero revenue. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. So I wouldn't call it a career. Yeah. <laughs> hobby, uh, hobby. Side hobby. Yeah. Side hobby. Yeah. Yeah, so there's one more uh, interesting layer to what he does, and uh, it, yeah, so I thought I'd mention that because we can we can definitely relate with. Uh, you got to call it a hobby, not a hustle. I think hustle <laughs> implies some sort of revenue being yeah. generated at some point, at some point, or some <laughs> some sort of potential future expectation. Yeah. yeah. So let's jump into it then. Your background, you know, wherever you want to start the story, whatever things interesting. How did you get to be where you are today? Sure, I started in development in 2007. I'm coming from an architecture background. So I did, my, I did my undergrad in architecture, did my master's in architecture and real estate. So I was already sort of thinking about potentially making that shift from the architecture world to development. And I actually never worked for an architect. I've always been in, on the development side. So that's kind of where, where I started. I've been at Slate for just over six years. So I started in 2016 to basically start the development group uh, within Slate. And now at this point, we're... You know, we've got over a dozen, a dozen projects in the pipeline, handful of projects under construction, and, uh, you know, I'm continuing to grow that business. And how many have you closed out or completed since you started there? We are about to close out our first project, which is Junction House. Okay. And that'll be first half of next year. It's a mid-rise project uh, in the Junction, nine stories, 151 units. Well, for anybody not familiar with the Junction, which would be a, a you know, fair part of the market, it is, well, how would you describe that? I guess inner ring... It's very cool area, ring very trendy. Entering core. Yeah. Like it's, it's still part of the downtown. For sure. For sure it would be. Very cool design. It had to blend into a very unique neighborhood. And I thought you did a great job on it. Thank you. So, yeah. Yeah, it's if you're 60 years old or maybe it's 50 and up, you would think of the junction as being pretty grimy, mm-hmm. which is the opposite now. No, absolutely. It's uh, bringing alcohol back to the neighborhood was uh, a way of miraculously bringing <laughs> vitalization back to it. But... Uh, no, it's, it's well, come give, a long give way. Give the background on that. Yeah, because it was, it was it's something like that was the last dry area of Toronto however many years it, ago. It, yeah. it, it was. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's called the junction because of the rail lines, obviously, that intersect there. And so the history of it was a pretty rough, a rough neighborhood. You know, you had people working in the rail industry and they go to bars and get in fights in the neighborhood after. And, and there was a very longstanding prohibition on alcohol in the area. And that depressed the area. And then things started to come back and well, I actually worked on a project in my former life uh, in the junction as well, Duke Condos. And that was done, I think that was launched in early 20, maybe 12 or so. And that was kind of, you know, one of the first projects that was actually a mid-rise project under the new, the new mid-rise guidelines, but it was also one of the first projects in the, in the junction as well too. So pretty pioneering project and obviously saw the junction, saw what was happening there, got excited about it and was able to do a new project there, Junction House. So, and to, to kind of wrap up the prohibition, I guess, victory here is there is an LCBO at the ground floor. And so it's... Uh, <laughs> You're right. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> Ultimately, I guess, alcohol won in this case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's back up just quickly. 
because I just want to get it to the pivot from architecture to development. What got you into architecture in the first place? Like, what was the attraction? Was it just real estate? Was it design? Was it art? Like, maybe just explain your purpose detra, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's actually a, a bit of a more of a backstory. So, I actually, before architecture, I actually started studying computer science in university. And I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I was very interested in technology, very interested in computers. Quickly learned that I don't like programming. I, I still love technology. It's something I write about a lot on the blog. Very interested in Web3 and crypto and everything that's happening in the space right now. You know, that's where I started, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Architecture was interesting to me because it was this, it was this fun or it seemed like this fun combination between something that's it was art, it was design, but it was also science and, and math and the other side of it, which I had an appreciation for as well with my background and where I was coming from. So I didn't know if I was going to like it. I transferred schools, transferred to architecture, started studying it. And it turns out I loved it. It was incredible. Really enjoyed studying it. But I also quickly learned going through that program that, you know, I think you're trained in some ways as an architect to... In some ways, you're almost, you know, in school, you're almost like a developer. You're given a site and it's like, what can I do with this site? Um, and you're trying to vision it. And I just started becoming way more interested in, in development and, and kind of understanding the full picture of a project. And I felt like in architecture school, I was, I was understanding a sliver of it, but I was not understanding the full picture. I wasn't understanding how it was, how it was financed. I wasn't understanding all of the other things that were kind of going into it to make something, make something happen. So, you know, started exposing myself to the real estate side and then started working for developers when I was in school. And, and that sort of kind of solidified everything for me. And, but I think, you know, the way that background is incredibly useful for development. And, and you know, I think that the type of projects that, that we do at Slate, we have a huge design focus, you know, where it's something that's important for every single project that we do. And so I think, you know, bringing that design focus, bringing that city building focus to the projects that we're doing is really important to, to how we think about development. Isn't that the, uh, like the, I mean, and you would bridge this gap, but isn't that the old cliche that the architect wants to build something beautiful that will win an award and the developer wants to build something that will, you know, make the most money and those can be very opposed at points in terms of goals? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously great, there's great architects that I think understand, they understand and see the bigger picture, but there are tensions for sure all throughout. There's tensions all throughout the whole development process. And, you know, I think, in many ways, you know, as developers, we're, we're kind of mediating between all of these different tensions and trying to find the most creative solution to satisfy what is ultimately a very complex problem, right? I mean, in this environment, obviously interest rates, obviously costs, the market is softening, at least right now. You're trying to still build a great project. You want to be good city building. You want to satisfy community, how the community thinks about the project. You want to satisfy the city. I mean, it's, it is a complex, multi- kind of variable problem that we're all trying to solve when we, when we build something. And, you know, that's kind of, that's a big part of our job is to manage all of that. Is that the most exciting part of the job? It's a very rewarding aspect. There's many parts that I love about the development process. There are parts that are certainly very, very frustrating. But I think, to be honest, probably the most rewarding for me is, is going on site. I try to visit all of our sites that are under construction, you know, once a week. And being on site and seeing it all come together is deeply satisfying. You know, you spend so long in the rezoning process. You spend so long getting it to that stage. And then being able to walk around on site and say, this is ultimately what we're doing it for. You know, we're building housing. We're building spaces for people to do things and live lives. In, and it's, it's very rewarding. I mean, I could even say as a, as a lender, who's not as deep into it, obviously, as somebody who's spent, you know, four years in pre-planning and can know, you know, could uh, picture it in their, in their sleep. I get a bit of that too. When I go see a, a job site, and there's three more stories up since last time I was there. You kind of go, oh yeah, this is city building. You this built is, that, Adam. Yeah. You built it. <laughs> some small part, some small, <laughs> small part. But uh, there's I all, did that. <laughs> I did that. We're all playing a part. Yeah. So let's jump into the, into the main topic, risk, risk and development. I mean, this is nothing, this is not a new marriage, obviously, with one of the riskier parts of real estate. But we're now in a much riskier environment than we would have been back in February when you were, you know, making your assumptions and reformas and putting together deals. So I think to make it interesting for the audience, we're going to talk about risk and development. We're going to start off with a little bit of, you know, the history of how developers have managed risk and then get into specifically what are we doing today? How are people still going to, you know, make a buck? And before we do that, and I absolutely, because that is the topic, but for context, because maybe not everybody's familiar with Slate in general, just talk about 
the founders of Slate. And I've heard, particularly Blair, more often than not, mm-hmm. just talk about, I don't know how to describe this, when everything's going one way, go the other way. Like, they're very almost contrarian in the way that they think about things, right? And I've heard it on panels. We had the pleasure of interviewing him on, the, on a podcast once, where and that just seems to be part of the, I don't know, the culture. Mm-hmm. So maybe just talk about that first and foremost, and then we'll get into more of the nitty-gritty of the current. Sure. Slate was founded in 05, Blair and Brady Welsh. And it was really a single strategy at that time, which was to, to buy Class B office buildings here on Bay Street in the financial district that were out of favor, really, and, and reposition those assets, invest money, invest in CapEx, release them, and then exit those, and exit those assets. And that's really kind of where the company started. And obviously, we've grown significantly since then. And we're, we're really now a, a global asset manager. We're in Canada, we're in the US, and we're in Europe. We have multiple different strategies spanning private equity funds. We have an institutional separate accounts business where we'll co-invest alongside institutions. We have two public REITs, uh, Slate Office REIT, which is across North America, and Slate Grocery REIT, which is focused on U.S. grocery stores. And that's it's a pure play strategy. So we've really grown the business. And, and you're right. I mean, that that is core in our DNA. And I would say it's it's really about looking where capital is not flowing in the market and then seeing if there's an opportunity there. And a big part of that is because obviously as soon as capital is flowing into, into a market, into an asset class, you know, the margins get squeezed and it's very, very, it's difficult and more challenging to make, to make money. So a big part of our strategy all across the platform is to really see where capital is not going. And is there an opportunity there where we can invest? I remember I was a wee lad sitting in one of the very first real estate forums I'd been to. And I can't remember the year. It must have been 2010, 2011. Like it was that long ago. And Blair was on one of the panels. And, and I can't remember exactly how it came up. But someone asked about their strategy to pivot from office to retail or buying grocery. Mm-hmm. Like it was that long ago. And he just said, well, like, yeah, but you know, you know what a grocery store is today is it just a great industrial distribution platform in the future. Right. And he was looking at going like, it's just future proof. doesn't matter whether I'm selling groceries out of it, but it's great location. And if it's industrial with 30 foot clear heights, that's what it will be in 30 years. I remember sitting there going, okay, I've never really, you know, this guy's thinking differently. At least maybe he wasn't, but at least at the time I got, okay, I like this guy. And it's been true. Every time I see them, both Blair and Brady talk, they're always looking at things just a little bit differently. So I'm not surprised we're here to talk about how you're developing in a time where it seems like nobody wants to develop. So let's go there. Let's talk about what it is you're looking at today. July 19th, rates are up. The Bank of Canada just announced another 100 basis point interest rate rise in the overnight rate. Prime is now, what, 4.7%, right? So I think we can say perhaps the recession's on the horizon, but mm-hmm. inflation is now over 7%. Everybody seems to think it's a foregone conclusion that recession is coming. A lot of pens are down right now in the development space. Yours are not. Why? Well, now say something nice about the market. That was, oh, a, yeah. that was a long list. Well, what, what nice is there to say? <laughs> Land's coming down. Land's cheap right now. If you can find <laughs> land for sale, right? Like, is that, is that an attribute? A good luck financing. It's cheaper in some, in some areas. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think obviously development takes a long time. We were just talking about that. So things are going to change. They change all throughout a project. You know, you think about how many things have happened in the lifespan of one of our projects. I mean, COVID happened and this and that. I mean, it's, it's, that's always the case. So, you know, you're constantly dealing with these, with these challenges. I'd say right now we're in this really interesting time because there's a lot, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty. Who knows? You know, I think we're, I think this is going to be, we're going to be in this state for certainly until the end of this year. But we're also, from a development perspective, we're in an interesting, an interesting moment because the market is softening but costs are still through the roof. And we have other costs, hard costs, I'll say, but also things like soft costs, you know, development charges, our increases are being pushed through. So you have this, this mismatch where the revenue side is sort of slowing down and softening and yet costs are still elevated. So it's a very tricky time to be developing a project. To, to unpack that a little bit further, maybe I'll chat about how this has changed over even a longer period of time. So, you know, if you think 15 years ago in Toronto and how projects were, were delivered, it was more common to, let's say, launch a, project, a condo project for sales before you even had your zoning in place. And, you know, it was, well, we'll get our zoning and, you know, we can save some time now. Let's go to market. Let's sell some condos and then everything will come together. And, you know, maybe worst case scenario, we have to chop a couple floors off and we return those, we return deposits on those units and we move forward. 
I think that has changed dramatically. We were never playing, doing that, playing that game. But I think in this environment, you're seeing a lot less of that. You know, the rezoning period is taking a lot longer. It's become a lot more complex. There's risk there. I think we've seen, even before this current environment, we've seen costs become a lot more volatile and, and, and bigger increases. And so you're seeing developers launch projects when they're much closer to construction. And I think in this particular environment right now, we're being extremely cautious and disciplined in terms of how we bring a project to market. So if we're going to start selling, pre-selling a condo project and locking in our revenue, we need to feel very confident where our costs are. And, you know, I think you've been able to manage that in prior years, but, you know, you carry an allowance, okay, costs might go up another, let's say, oh, let's say they go up 5%, we'll have a contingency, we'll go to market. I think more and more now developers, when you want to be really, really tight and make sure that you can get into, into the ground as quickly as you can, you've got line of sight on your costs. So, I think it's it's really changed how you bring a project to market. So even before the market softened, costs were are a big problem. This, you know, it's been a, the story for the last 18 months or so. But at least then, sale prices were increasing. So I assume that it also be the benefit of selling as close to possible to the end would also help capture as much as the market upswing over time as possible. Would you see the inverse as being true now? Or maybe you want to try and sell now before prices go down? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And there's two schools of thought on that. And you'll get different answers depending on the developers. Some developers want to hit the market at the right time and sell 100%. And, you know, the market's strong. Let's sell 100% of the project, pre-sell it, and then we'll build it out because maybe when the project is done, prices are a little bit lower than where they are at the end. The other school of thought is you're going to hold back. You're going to sell just what you need for financing or hold back some other portion and, you know, the expectations prices will continue to rise in the future and you'll be able to sell the balance. I don't know if there's really a right answer, right or wrong answer to that. Why don't you just build it on spec? Sell it later. <laughs> you Do the American model, can, yeah. Can you find it? What's the financing look like? That's the, yeah. <laughs> I, no, I, hey, well, that, and it's funny. I, that's, I wanted that answer because I, this is a funny thing. We, we've had this conversation about the condo side. Like it is, we kind of, the lenders, we kind of make this really challenging for you developers on the condo side. Because in the apartments, you don't to build it on spec in theory. And then you go and lease it out and you get the benefit of yeah. whatever the environment is at the time, assuming it's increased, which is what we've experienced for a long time. But we force you to go pre-sale. Mm-hmm. Do you ever talk to your lenders and say, come on, like, can you not give us a bigger residual? Can you not let us go a little bit more aggressive? I mean, shoot, we're slate asset management. Look how big we are. Like, Let us go even further down because I will get greater sales and a better revenue and I can build a better asset if you let me go you know, with less sales. Are, are you front. making a formal oh, offer? Yeah, I would say no. Yeah, yeah, no, the answer is no, but I'm just asking what you... <laughs> I mean, it's always, it's a back and forth, but I mean, I mean, it's a very good question because, you know, in this environment right now, is that a, was that a better approach and make sure you have certainty on your costs? I mean, there are instances of developers doing that. Because I mean, the reality is you go, well, just wait to get to the end. If you can't sell the units, then just convert it to an apartment building. Yeah, that's always the plan B. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, yeah. but apartment I mean, guys do the same yeah, plan well, the other direction. Yeah, yeah, we'll just see Hondo. Yeah, it is an interesting thing. It's a catch twenty two because you need the financing in order to build it, but the financing kind of hamstrings you because it forces you to lock in your revenue long before you truly yeah. know what your yield is going to be at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So, talk about the cost, mitigating the cost, because I mean, we've heard a bunch of stuff in previous interviews where you know because there's some pens down. I mean, there's a bunch of developers that have said they're just not proceeding. One just, I think it was King said, we can say, I think it's public. They're not doing, there's 5,000 units that was in their pipeline. They've just put pens down sometime in the future. That, that was set at the Land Development the Conference. conference. There so, we go. Yeah, Perfect. There's full yeah. circle. So yeah. there's lots, right, of that mm-hmm. kind of going on. So in theory, then trades are losing contracts, aren't as busy. Their margins may be coming down to keep their pipeline. They've got a big staffing. They need to keep busy. Are you seeing prices? Are you seeing trades come back saying, hey, I know I said my price was X. Now it's Y downwards? Like, is that no. not happening? No. It's not happening and maybe it's not yet, but it's not happening. The opposite is happening right now. Everyone's getting hit with escalation, escalation charges. You know, glass prices are up, aluminum prices are up, this is up. I mean, I think we're still, we're still in that phase and there's a lag, right? I mean, there's so many lags in, in development, but I think there's a lag right now where, and it gets back to my earlier point where, you know, let's say the revenue side is softening, although rents are doing, you know, rents are, are up in but I mean, the revenue side is is softening, but the costs are still elevated. And, you know, I think we're going to see, we'll see, hopefully they'll come down. But I mean, there's, they tend to be pretty sticky as well. But I think we're in this interesting period of time where there's that mismatch. What about fixed price contracts? We've had this conversation too. Like, that's just kind of a 
It's a fairy tale, isn't it? I mean, in this environment, be right? nice to your trades friends, but yeah, like it's <laughs> oh, they're great for yeah. I mean, look, in this environment, it's very, very challenging because I mean, if you try to negotiate a fixed price contract, the amount of buffer and allowance that's going to be in that today, given the uncertainty, is going to make it untenable in, mo- in pretty much all cases. So it's challenging, and I think. The other thing too is, I mean, we're developing some pretty interesting buildings. We have one Delisle at, at Young and St. Clair, which we're working with an international architect out of Chicago, Studio Gang Architects. It's a piece of architecture. I mean, it's it's a pretty unique build. There's a lot of there are a lot of unique details and complexities to that. And our strategy with that, and that was even you know before this year, obviously, because we're under we're under construction now, was to really run a much more integrated process, engage trades early work on a design assist basis, have them weigh in on the, during, during the design process and say, hey, look, this is what we've designed, but maybe this makes no sense at all. And maybe there's a better way to optimize this. And I think that's a better process, especially if you've got a complex project like One Delisle. And are they more responsive then in knowing that you're including them to that extent? Absolutely. And I, I guess the question I'm asking is, what's the benefit to you then? Like, they're just not going to walk. They're not going to charge you more. Like, they're not going to not charge you more, right? Like, is there just building a relationship long-term because the next project, they're going to be there yeah, for you? Yeah, but I think if you design in a vacuum and you go out and get a price on it, you can get a price on it, but maybe it is an incredibly inefficient design and there are actual savings there. And so we often go through a VE exercise, a value engineering exercise with the trades to say, hey, how can we make this easier on you to, to build? And there are things that, you know, as much as you try to understand as much as you can about construction and the whole development process, there are things that you just, you just can't know. You can't know details in terms of how their production line works. And they'll come back and say, well, you know what? If you reduce this from 500 millimeters to 300 millimeters, this is actually a huge savings for us because of the way our systems work, et cetera, et cetera. And we can save you a bunch of money here. And they're happy to do that if they're involved in, in the discussion. And are you noticing trade costs coming down at all right now? We've been hearing that. Because uh, commodities are down, right? I, mean, I guess that's yeah. the lag. There yeah. is a lag. We're not seeing that yet. But anticipated perhaps? You know, again, these tend to be sticky. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think anyone's carrying reduced costs going forward right now. I mean, it's, but we'll see what happens. If projects get canceled, the market slows down. The problem is they're still, everyone's still busy. Everything's still, everything's still under construction. So if the market does slow down and construction does slow down, maybe we will see some softening. I mean, if you look at, I was recently looking at, at construction costs over the last, whatever, 20, 25 years. And there were, I think, two periods where there were actually negative price adjustments on construction costs. So it can't happen. It tends to be sticky. It depends on, you know, how much construction slows down. That doesn't include land prices, I guess. That's just hard costs. That's just hard costs, yeah. yeah. What about, like, off-site construction? We're seeing, hearing more about bringing sort of half-built components to the on-site. Have you explored that? Is that something you've, you've deployed? Or is it just, what is the reasons for or against not doing that? We haven't deployed it. It is something that we're, we're looking at. You know, I think that there's a lot of interest in the city in terms of prefabricated mass timber, mass timber in general, but prefabricated mass timber. There's a couple of projects right now. One down the street, just over here on the, on the harbor front. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's going to be more and more developers exploring that. It's something that we're in the early stages of, of looking at. I don't think there's any great cost savings necessarily there, but you do, you know, you're saving on, it's speed. It's time, right? It's, yeah. yeah, it's speed. It's, you're building in a, in a controlled environment. So quality control. And what about like winter delays, that kind of thing? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Weather, less weather days. Yeah. It's things like… Easier on tight sites. Yeah. 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 So it's potential. Do you think like it makes sense? What about 3D printing? While well, I'm just on the top yeah, of the brand. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Has it even stuff. come across yeah. the conversations like when you're having your quarterly management meetings? Anyone go, what about this? Or is it still way too far away? It's, uh, it's something that I've looked at. Out of pure interest, it's not something we're, we've seriously looked at for any, any project. Because there's somebody in Ottawa doing it. And we'll, we, Adam and I will try to figure out how to get them on here. But there is yeah. a, there's a developer building, I don't know, like a 20 plex or so in Ottawa right now using 3D printing concrete. Pretty interesting. So yeah, it's very, happening. It's very interesting. You know, it is happening. Is, there's lots of examples of, of it happening. The ones I've seen are small scale, like single family homes. Yeah, so this is a 20 plex. So they're, oh, it they're, is 20, yeah, 20, yeah. 20 unit apartment building out in Ottawa. So we'll, if you're listening. Yeah, come on down. You're the next contestant or guest on the, on the podcast. Well, do you see tech saving us from uh, cost escalations? Is there any, anything that jumps out as like, if that could really take a hold of the industry, would offset development charges bludgeoning us over the head? You know, I think prefabrication automation is something that our industry has been interested in for so long. And 
it's well documented how inefficient the construction process is. And you know, you look at productivity gains over how many decades of construction, and we really haven't seen the gains. And you know, often we get compared to, let's say, the auto sector that's been able to systematically improve productivity over time, and yet we're not doing that in construction. So we've been looking at this for so long. I don't know if I'm just being overly optimistic, but it does feel like there's starting to be some real momentum around it. Prefab mass timber, infill projects using those sorts of technologies. I just think there is, it feels like more of that is becoming... Well, tangible product. I say tangible projects. Like yeah. That's the nice part about it. I mean, it was fun discussing it six years ago, but to see sites going up with it is a totally different thing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's you know, it's so challenging because we sometimes joke with our construction people that it's, it's, you know, every building feels like a prototype. It's like, you know, it always feels like you're building something for the first time and there's always these new things that come up and it's like, how could we, how have we not solved this before? <laughs> but, you know, it's, you know, that's one of the challenges with prefab is, is there's sometimes, oftentimes an inflexibility where you know, you're following a certain grid, you're following a certain system and maybe your units because of the site end up too big or they're, or they're awkward. It's always those things that are coming, that come up. So it's happening, it's exciting and, and hopefully we see more of it. Yeah, it functions better, I guess, like maybe a, a subdivision model where you just got a clean slate and yeah. perfectly flat site and you can get perfect rectangles and whatever else you need. But yeah, if you're trying to do downtown infill on a tight site, it's a different story. You know, I think, and I think the other thing too, that, you know, a lot of people are starting to explore this because, you know, we, we talk so much in Toronto about missing middle and, and how do we encourage that scale of, of housing. But I think you're seeing a lot, you're seeing a lot of people look at this technology and see if there's an opportunity to deploy that at, potentially a greater scale. And, you know, you kind of, you're, you're operating a scale where you can maybe find some savings. Maybe, you, you know, you're under the inclusionary zoning thresholds. So you don't have that. You know, you're small enough. You can avoid the big loading spaces, the type G, things like that, where I think people are starting to look at that. And if you can get it to, to work and deploy it at scale, maybe there's an opportunity to do that. It's exciting because I think we do need more of that. You know, we are, I've said this before on the blog, but we, we're a very spiky city. I'm looking at ice condos right now outside of the window and we, we have we have high rises and then we fall off generally pretty quickly to low rise and it's very, very spiky. And you know, I think there's a lot of people looking at that medium, medium scale and how do we encourage more of that? The Parisian model of uh, development. Well, they, okay, so let's talk about that then because obviously we've talked a little bit about interest rates and costs that, you mm-hmm. know, the two big items that everybody's concerned about, but on the solution front, interest rates coming down, which might be difficult at the time and costs, what would you see as solutions for Toronto? You know, we give you the city planner title and the ability to cut through red tape with uh, be know, nice. Yeah, <laughs> what I'm uh, always nice. Yeah, what programs are you rolling out to improve the development landscape in uh, in Toronto? I think I think there's a couple of things. I think that speed is very very important, and the whole rezoning and titling process continues to get more complicated. And we we've talked about that. I think that when we're talking about infill, modest infill projects, whether it's missing middle type stuff, mid rise projects. You know, that should be streamlined. That should be a lot easier. We should be building a lot of that stuff as of right. You know, in the example, you know, the example that I, that I kind of think of right now is if you think of laneway suites, for example, which is a, a fair, relatively new thing in the city of Toronto, you can build them as of right. You submit for building permits. Six weeks later, you get your permit and you're, and you're off. And if laneway houses had to go through a more elaborate entitlement process, they would not be feasible. But the fact that we're doing that, there's also benefits from, you know, there's a, a DC deferral program as well as part of that. But if you can take some of that and kind of scale it up and apply that to larger scale, but still like missing middle, mid-rise housing, allow it as of right, allow it to get permits a lot easier and quicker, I think we would see a lot more of it. I think it was too much, there's too much in the way of those types of projects. You know, we're in an environment where a single person in, in the community can frankly hold up a project. And for small scale projects, that can be the kiss of death. It's very, very challenging. So I think that's an opportunity right there. Yeah, um, Marlon Bray, former podcast guest and uh, Altus cost consultant. No, he's something else. Anyways, that's <laughs> actually where I saw the the construction cost chart. Oh, okay, he, he posted yeah. it on, no, he, on, oh, he's great. on LinkedIn, guess. and it was yeah. Well, his comment on LinkedIn, same thing, was that Toronto arguably has the worst approval process in North America. I don't know if that was a moment of frustration and uh, exaggeration, but even if it's close to true, that's a very significant cost in all the developers here. Like, what would it do for? your return and ability to manage cost if you could get your approval timeline down to, you know, a handful of months? Yeah, I mean, it's significant, but I think it's also to, so there's significant cost savings, interest charges, all of these things. But I think it's also just for smaller projects, 
a lot of developers don't want to take on the entitlement risk. If it's a small, if it's a small project, why, why are you going to subject yourself to that? If you're going to go through a, a two to three or sometimes longer rezoning process, you're going to do the biggest project you can possibly afford to do or the biggest site that you can, you can find because it's the same duration. So, you know, I think there should be some incentives to do those smaller projects, especially if we, you know, if we collectively decide that, hey, you know, we should have some more missing middle type housing on some of our major streets and, and encourage more mid-rise. I mean, make those as easy as possible because right, right now they're more expensive to build. And higher risk. And, uh, yeah. The other item I'd ask you about, you know, which we've touched on a couple of times, of course, is interest rates. Interest rates affect, of course, you know, your borrowing cost when you're putting up properties. It also impacts the borrowing ability of the ultimate end users of a, a lot of these units. And then even at a hard cost level, I'm sure your suppliers have to contend with higher interest rate costs in there. So when you're modeling out this current environment, how damaging is it to return and cost to be 200 basis points higher than we were three months ago? I feel like I'm sitting with the experts on this. Like, how do you, how do you guys think of interest rate increases? What are you, what are you doing right now? I don't know. It, rates are up. I didn't, I didn't realize <laughs> I missed that. Biting I've been on vacation nails. for two weeks. I yeah, totally I missed back that. From Florida. <laughs> I mean, how are we viewing it? I mean, it's, it's a you know, daily obsession at this point, watching the bond yields come and go. And, you know, the lead up to every uh, Bank of Canada announcement, it feels like we're getting ready for, uh, you know, the Super Bowl in terms of the, uh, the anticipation. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's tough. We're, we're doing our own stress testing, you know, because yeah, interest rates are up for mm-hmm. sure, but we don't know where the ceiling is. You know, there's lots of smart people saying we might be near it and I hope they're right, but they could also be wrong. We could be 200 basis points off the ceiling. You know, what does that do for our projects? How's get them offside? How's the exit off of these going to look? It's a risk and we obsess over it and, you know, check in with our clients a lot to make sure that they can handle some of the turbulence that, that is already here and might get worse. So yeah, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of monitoring, a lot of stress testing along the way. And of course, with, you know, new, new deals coming in now, you know, not that we weren't doing thorough vetting before, but it's, you know, paying particular attention to that, that aspect of underwriting a deal right now. And Aaron, what, on the credit side, what do you, what do you think? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. Absolutely. It's interesting. It's, it's twofold. Focusing on development, because of course, the term side is really just what can you afford based on the cash flow. So yep. that's a little bit more straightforward. It just means that whatever your valuation is, regardless, you can only afford a certain dollar amount, right? Based on today's interest Loan cutbacks is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> so like what was 70% loan to value is now 55% because that's all you can afford at a 5% interest rate versus a 3%. So that, that one's fairly straightforward. And you managed to crystallize it almost immediately because you lock in rate shortly after. And so the risk period is pretty small in terms of... Yeah. I mean, the reality is just yeah. means more equity. Would you, if you bought it for 10 million, you thought you can only have 3 million of equity. Now you got to have 5 million of equity because that's just the nuts and bolts of the capital stack. But so, I mean, that, that has a whole different conversation on valuations. We'll get there later or another time. On the development side, I think it's really interesting because there's two folds. There's the condo side, which is mm-hmm. what we were talking about a lot, where it's just a part of the cost, right? It's just a it's just a line item in your in your budget. And so of course we're monitoring it. And depending on the increase of the rates, we might ask for an increase on that line item. And that may require a little bit more equity in for the condo developer just to keep the equity thresholds on side or ratios on side. But I'm not sure it's really material. Like it's, it's one of 50 line items. Yeah. And proportionately, like what does it make up? 5% of the total budget? 10% maybe, depending on what you pay for the land, right? Like, Yeah. I mean, but it it's all adds up. And, you know, we've got development charges where there's a proposed 49% increase. Costs are, we're seeing swings in certain hard cost items, 30, 40% over, over this year. So all of these things are adding up. And it is something that we're obviously spending a lot of time looking at and looking at different scenarios and what that means and being very careful about how we move forward on, the, on this. Again, I, proportionately compared to the hard cost escalations and, and what we've talked about quite a bit, interest rates, yeah, they're up. I don't know, whatever it is, 200, 300%. I've lost track now. They're up quite a bit. But proportionately, again, it's, it is. It's, it's, a meaningful, it's a meaningful increase, but it's not material in the sense that it's... it's I don't think people walk away from a deal because the interest rate costs. I think they might walk away from the deal because altogether everything added up is... I don't think the interest rate cost is the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Maybe it is, I guess, collectively. Mm-hmm. Again, the variable there is the land cost too, right? Because if you've bought the land 15 years ago or you're doing you know, intensification of a site, you probably can back into it to make sense anyway because in theory, the land's whatever you put Quote on unquote it. free. Yeah, right? <laughs> so Yeah, I mean, we're... We're not generally in the business of buying land and sitting on it for 10 to 15 years. We're usually trying to develop it as, as quickly as we, as we can. But I think, you know, this is a real concern because 
if you think about where we've been, what we've been doing in recent history is costs keep going up and, and prices have gone up and we've been able to absorb on the revenue. So we've been able to absorb a lot of these costs. I think you could argue there's been some compression on, on developer margins throughout this. But one of the questions that a lot of developers are constantly asking themselves is how much price elasticity is left in this market? And we're asking this before this year as well, but to what extent can purchasers still continue to absorb all of these, all of these increases? So that we were worried about that before, and now we're in an environment where interest rates are going up, and like, and that, like user interest rates, not even just development yes, interest rates, yes. user interest rates. Yeah, right? so that's reducing buying power now on that side. So what is there's a lot of a lot of tensions right now in the system. I'm really curious to see. I mean, maybe you, you answer this if you if you have an example where you've gone hard on the pre-sale, so you're at whatever threshold you need to the finance. You're in into the ground development. But you're still two to three years from delivery or at least a period out from delivery. So in theory, those condo buyers haven't locked their interest rates, right? They have, they've got pre-approved financing, but I'm sure that's all conditional. Mm-hmm. How many of your condo... And maybe this is a sensitive question, <laughs> yes. but how many of your condo buyers are, are looking at it going like, I just I can't afford this now. When interest rates were 2%, it was a stretch for me. Now at 4% or 49 I got to walk. Like, here, here, take my deposit, I'm out. Or like, how do you vet that? Or how concerned are you as a developer? Or are you kind of just, let's just hope that when we get to delivery, things have reverted themselves. Yeah. I mean, knock on wood. I mean, we'll be delivering Junction House next year. So, you know, it'll be, we'll see who knows what the world's like at that point. But, you know, I think it is something, it's something a lot of people are thinking about. You know, it's one thing to sell units, but are you going to be able to close those units at the end of the day? You know, we'll see. Do purchase sale agreements have an out for that buyer or is they are there there doesn't matter they've waived on financing when they've closed on that on yeah. that on that transaction yeah. would you guys land on a project if all the purchasers could walk away <laughs> no <before>? well, <laughs> but, I mean, but you do i mean clearly you guys have i mean when you're buying land you have a financial sure. conditions in theory right yeah. so i'm just wondering when that waiver occurs yeah, no it's it's gone long gone at this point right so then when you're looking at interest rates do you buy into the kind of common recurring theme we're hearing that we'll get to recession by the time you're delivering Junction House, and interest rates will have come back down. Is that the altar that uh, <laughs> you? I don't know. Lay the- well, I mean, it really depends because it depends on what you sold it at. I mean, if they have to walk away, you keep the deposit, and you, maybe you resell it at the same level, maybe a higher level. I mean, there's so many variables you just don't know, right? That that's we, yeah. But they're walking just, away. You're probably selling it at a lower level. That's the reality of it. Presumably, yeah. yeah, presumably. But I mean, I guess that's you don't know, <laughs> so it's tough to really make a decision right now, right? Yeah, I mean, if people are walking away, then there's been a significant correction in in. Well, hasn't the correction already occurred? It went from a two percent interest rate or one point seven percent interest rate to a four point nine percent interest rate. Like it may just very well be that, right? Like when does inflation get under control? Yeah, I don't know. You know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I think most of us in this industry are very bullish on Toronto and the and the fundamentals, the long term fundamentals in this market, and so. You know, I think certainly one of the ways that I think is, I, you know, I try to take a very long-term view on a lot of these things. And so are we going to be fine in, in 10 years, in 15 years? Is, is Toronto yeah. going to be fine? Absolutely. This is an incredible global city and the demand is going to continue to be there. So, you know, I think you got to think that way in these types of, in these types of cycles. I do find myself saying that to friends that are outside of the industry talking, asking the questions. I say, well, it's the epicenter of the finance community in Canada, the epicenter of the health community in Canada, the epicenter of the education community in center, epicenter of the technology. You know, like if it's basically every major driver of the economy in Canada, sorry, but it is predominantly here. Of course, there's lots of great economic drivers in other major cities in Canada, but ultimately Toronto is still the you know, most headquarters are here. And that will forever allow us to continue to grow and, and be fine in the long term. Right. So well much like you know developer is in it long term, a lender is in it long term. Nobody expects to run a business for decades in real estate and it's just going to be sunshine the entire time. You know, there's going to be ups and downs and maybe right now is a bit of a I always, I remember when this was starting to come as a lender, we kind of saw it first because we were watching interest rates. I don't think, like back in February, we were kind of like, oh, this is going to get bad because of course we were starting to read the tea leaves and knew it was coming, but nobody knew. And we started having whispers of clients coming in and everything. Adam was telling me a story about a a client calling and saying, okay, I'm ready to sign that letter of interest because my rate's still... 1.8%. 1.8%. Yeah. And Adam's like, er, sorry, it's three and a half or whatever. Yeah, and they yeah. were just like, you jerk. And you know, you're <laughs> ripping me off. And I remember having this one conversation with a group here being like, who knew real estate cyclical, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. we're all younger guys. And so this is really the first part of a 20, first end of a first cycle that I've seen, 20 year cycle. But of course it's cyclical. It just happens, right? So yeah. you can't be surprised. You got to just, I don't know, do what you're doing. 
be really thoughtful, be really conscientious of your costs and your inputs and your outputs and try to make your way through it. Because in the long run, you're going to be okay. No, absolutely. I mean, I was actually living in the US in 2008 when all of that was happening. And I remember people, I remember developers telling me that the US would never build another commercial office building for the next 20 years because the market was so horrible. And obviously in Canada, it was a little bit, it was different. Things kind of paused. It wasn't the same way as the US, but it was a very different tone down there. And I do, I do remember that very, very clearly. And, you know, that stuck with me. But, you know, the other thing I, I'd say too, where, you know, Slay, we're in, we're in a bit of a unique position because we're not a pure play developer. Developer is one thing that we do amongst many other things. And, you know, we, we actually started a debt business in the middle of COVID. So we're now on the equity side and the debt side, which historically we're always, we were always on equity. So we're in a very unique position because we have diversified across a number of different asset classes, different strategies, and different geographies. So when we're making a decision, it's like, hey, do we want to develop this in Toronto? Or do we want to do something else in Europe? Or do we want to do this? Or do we want to do that? So we're in a fortunate position where we can, you know, we can tailor to what's going on in the, in the environment. And I think what that means, you know, we're going to continue to grow the development business and we want to continue to do do exciting projects, but we can be very patient, very disciplined. And if we find great sites, we'll continue to do them. We'll do them today, but we're not in a rush. There's lots of other, other opportunities that we can find, right? And leading the capital flows, not following the capital flows. Absolutely. Exactly. So, I mean, we're quickly running out of time. And so, I mean, the last topic, just because it is on top of mind, is just the ESG component of development. I went on a rant on the last episode, I think, that we've released about just the the impact of development on climate change, carbon outputs, and it is being it is still a very dirty industry, particularly on the demolition development side of the business. So I'm sure it's something at Slate that you guys are talking about, particularly because you're involved in Europe. In Europe, they're I don't know however far they're ahead than we are here. So what are the conversations like, and what is it that you guys are doing to try to get ahead of the curve? Yeah, I mean, on the development side, we have always focused on urban infill projects. We don't do greenfield. We don't do do low rise low rise homes. So we've always focused on that. And I think even just starting from, I mean, it's it's not necessarily novel. I mean, this is the way our industry has shifted in this in this market. But you know, I think even just focusing on that and focusing on transit supportive projects is a great start. You know, being able to we look for projects that are on transit where we can build low parking ratios. Obviously, there's there's economic benefits to doing that, but we think it's also where where we need to be heading as a region. So I think there's some very fundamental things that we have always focused on on the development side. ESG is you know you're right. You know our presence in Europe I think is is showing us what they're doing over there. And what's coming here? Like it's inevitable. Coming. Yeah, a- absolutely. So we actually we have a new head of head of uh, ESG who sits in our London office and is really sort of growing that side of our business and, and kind of infiltrating everything that we do. And that takes the form of, you know, even just as simple as a checklist for our development projects. We're looking at a new site. Okay, which, how are we going to evaluate this site and whether it meets our ESG, our broader ESG strategies? But we also started a new cities and communities strategy that's also out of our, out of our London office. And what it is, is we're investing in, in assets and technologies that can advance our goals around, around climate change. And so for example, we recently invested in a, in a vertical farming business in the UK. We've done EV charge, investment in EV charging companies. So these are just offsets? No, it's an actual farming oh, business. Oh, vertical farming oh, business. Wow. Standalone business. Standalone, a standalone business. Yeah. So we'll make investments that, that further these goals. And that's a strategy that we've, we've also established over during COVID as well. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's got to be nice. I mean, Aaron mentioned staying ahead of the curve. But, you know, we look to Europe for, uh, for guidance, but you're active there. So you have a playbook to look at. How long do you think it is before Canada closes the gap to behaving more like a Europe in terms of an ESG oh, God. prioritization? <laughs> yeah, it's a very tough question. I mean, it's, it's probably a decade plus still. I'm not even sure how. Or there is a gap, I guess. There yeah, is we'll, a gap. We'll say that. There it's tough to put a number to it. but It's uh, tough. Yeah. But there is, there is a gap. They are ahead of us. And we're fortunate to be able to, to be active in that market and see see what players are doing in that market, what also investors are asking for and what they want to see. Well, that's the big driver we've talked about before, of course, is uh, investment dollars. People will make sure they're uh, prioritizing ESG if their investment dollars are. But we've heard feedback from people that definitely know what they're talking about that uh, regulatory will probably be the biggest, quickest driver if there's political will to do so. So maybe that will be the, the, the turning point where we can close that gap rapidly. You know, one last topic, we had recently released a podcast for a gentleman named Jose Pelliser, who is the you know, have a MNG with a large fund out in, in Europe. 
second largest in Britain, 20th largest in Europe, something like that. $50 yeah, billion dollars of under management. So go back and look for that podcast. He said two things. When you first go to look to buy an asset or develop something, what's my yield? What's my ESG impact? Like those are the two business critical components. And we're just not there yet. Like I'm not sure it's the it's line item number two on, am I going to do this development or am I going to buy this asset? That's coming, I'm assuming, to Canada in the future. It's part of all of our acquisitions now. It has to be, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Brandon, we are out of time here. Two things before we go, though. I want to recommend to everybody, subscribe to Brandon's blog. It is a little bit of insight. What's it called? Just my name, BrandonDonnelly.com. BrandonDonnelly.com. Okay, we'll yep. put it in the show notes too. If you want to click on there. Good for you for not promoing that the entire time you're here. It's the only reason he's on the podcast. Yeah. Is to get the... <laughs> but uh, yeah, for listeners, it's definitely worth the uh, subscription. It's just comes out at six in the morning. I'm sure you're not doing it live at six in the morning, but does come out first thing in your inbox not and uh, you get some insight. And uh, if you are a reader of the blog, you'll know that Brandon's a, a keen follower and owner of uh, NFTs. So as soon as we get into real estate NFTs, we're going to have you back on to uh, talk about that. But uh, I guess the market's not quite there yet. Starting though. Starting, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. the next one. Okay, yeah. we'll come back. Part two, Brandon Donnelly, yeah. part two. Six months, maybe. Something, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we need to develop a little more. But uh, anyways, the insight's been... Uh, it's nice getting it in person because I mean, I, I, I read your stuff every morning. So it's nice getting it straight from the horse's mouth. This has been a, a great conversation. Thanks to the Real Estate Forums for introducing us to Brandon at the Land of Dev Conference. And of course, thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Up next is the after show. So please don't go anywhere. All right. Thanks, guys. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I discuss the conversation that just took place. I was glad we were able to connect with Brandon. You know, as I said, every morning, you know, I read it. It's, It's digestible. It's entertaining. I mean, I can't imagine how much time he spends scouring and researching to find something to talk about, but he does it well. So I wanted to have him on for a while. And, you know, and I thought he delivered well. It was a really interesting conversation, really transparent about risk in the market. Because I will say, you know, as we speak to people, some people are being playing a little close to the chest in terms of how they're dealing with the current environment and their thoughts because the sun's not shining the way it was back in February. Yeah, it was admittedly cautious, but proceeding, which I think, I mean, when you're the, as big as Slate asset management is. And like you said, you've got the the benefit of multiple jurisdictions, also different Stabilized strategies. Stabilized portfolio. Yeah. You, yeah. I, mean, yeah like I, I don't know how big it is. He didn't say, I don't remember. I don't think, but it's... A portfolio. I mean, it would be a B. Be yeah. Billions. It would start with the yeah. billions. And that's of cash flowing assets, not, not the development side. Those are stable. And that's probably 40% levered. Like they... And it's all long-term tenanted retail assets, office buildings. Kind of yeah. Stuff. Institutional stuff. So yeah. like, they're just sitting on every month the amount of cash flow, like net cash flow to their bank account is huge, right? So that gives them a lot of comfort to be yeah. a little bit more. And he said it, lead the cash flow, don't follow the cash flow, right? So and it will benefit them because I mean there are gonna be opportunities. Like there's definitely developers that have sites and opportunities that were viable back in February. And I don't mean they're not viable now. Like the actual development could be viable. It's just their ability to handle potential fluctuations won't be there. And so they'll be looking to sell or JV or, or whatever it is. And so groups like Slate are going to see some opportunities that they were probably not of exposure to back in yeah, uh, February. Yeah. Well-capitalized, good reputation, great people. I mean, Blair and Brady, their reputation precedes them, right? Everybody knows who they are and everybody likes them. It's a well, um, former First National uh, yeah, employee. Yeah, we didn't plug that while, while he was yeah. here. But yeah, Blair owes everything he's ever done in his life to First National. <laughs> But yeah, no, that was a really interesting conversation. What was really neat, like you said, is he just, he was being totally transparent and honest, which I don't think you often get. We don't necessarily always get. No offense yeah. to some of our guests, yeah. but it was nice. I think that maybe that's part of the fact that he's got the blog. And so it's, yeah, he's used to just being yeah. open and yeah. out there, right? <laughs> BrandonDonnelly.ca. .ca or .com. I'm sure if you would Google Brandon Donnelly Real Estate or Brandon okay. Donnelly I'll look it up. blog. And then as I said, we'll be in the show notes as well. But interesting perspective is part of the reason, you know, I like reading it is he has that architecture background. And like, I don't, you know, I really view real estate in a real Excel spreadsheet numbers, profit margin kind of way. I fall firmly on that side of the equation, but I can appreciate somebody's viewpoint who is on the beauty, the aesthetic, the revolution, the change in real estate, all of that side of it too. But I don't have a background in it. So 
you know, he's a, he's a great guide for it. Yeah, I, I like pretty looking buildings, but that's, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you what that means. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't tell you what style it is. I couldn't tell you what era or, you know, it's, uh, it's just pretty to me. I don't know. <laughs> How do you, is that technical term? I don't yeah. know. One question I didn't ask him, maybe maybe doesn't know the answer. Is it, are you going to pause projects? Are He did allude to the fact that we'll be looking at you know, some opportunities that come up. So obviously they're not, they're not fully pens down, but well, like many of the other well catalyzed groups out there, it's, pens, maybe pens halfway down, you know, if there's, uh, if there's gradients or scales of, of pens down, uh, cause I've, I've had that feedback from a lot of, you know, larger clients, like, well, are you still in the market? They're like, well, no, but the right opportunity comes along and definitely in. It's like, okay, so you still are, still are in the market to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on who you are. There it's patient capital, what your backing is, what your capital sources are. I mean, obviously I'm sure, I mean, he didn't get into it, but they've got funds, right? It's not just all private. So they've got funds that, I don't know whether it's patient or whether it's open-ended or closed. I mean, who knows, right? So there's got to be some motivation at some times, depending on who it is. But again, I mean, back just to the culture of, of Slate has always been opportunistic to a certain degree. So I think they see this sort of disruption in the marketplace and go, perfect, let's go find the opportunity to look at something differently that no one else is looking at, right? Like that's just the way that they've always operated. Yeah, that's, that is the word that you know, the exact word I've heard numerous times is, uh, well, we're opportunistically looking in the marketplace right now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess the problem is if everybody's doing that, then nothing's an opportunity, right? Like, yeah. I mean, and, and we're not really seeing it yet. Like we're not seeing like any fire sale or real estate. I mean, and, you know, fingers crossed for the health of the market. I hope we don't, despite maybe some people's view of wanting to buy it. But the same conversations are taking place in, you know, March, April, May, June, July of 2020 as you know, the effects of COVID rolled out and you know, opportunistically looking was repeated over and over and it just never materialized. It never happened. And all of a sudden the fall came and the market kind of snapped back and nobody got to scoop up center ice, crown jewel real estate for pennies on the dollar the way that they thought they might have. I mean, you wonder if it's just a function of just how conservative Canadians are in general and how great the market's been for 20 years. And so there's so many strong institutions that are just so well capitalized that they can weather significant storms. Not that this is a significant storm. I think this is still mild. So it's, there isn't this catastrophe where a company like Slate, you know, as an example, is all of a sudden having to do a fire sale because they've overextended themselves. Like I, just don't, I don't know of anybody out there that's in that scenario. Not yet. And I can't foresee it coming. Like it just, who is, who would be there, right? There might be some small guys, I'm assuming that, you know. Too many projects. Yeah, right. Mismanaged property. Too many projects for them, meaning maybe they've got three on the go and they should have only had two. Not somebody like Slate that can handle 15 or whatever the number is, right? So, well, I guess prophetic words. We'll see. uh, We'll see what happens here over the market, but at least that's our view right now. Hopefully it's like COVID. We all kind of held our breath and exhaled gently and collectively and Uh, back to business. Party's back on, everybody. Yeah, let's go. (laughs) But that's it. That's our thoughts. Thanks again to First National, the Real Estate Forums, and of course to Brandon for sharing his thoughts with us today. See everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.